Admiral Richard E. Byrd's Diary, February 1947. The exploration flight over the North Pole. 0910 hours. Both magnetic and gyro compasses beginning to gyrate and wobble. We are unable to hold our heading by instrumentation. Beyond the mountain ranges, what appears to be a valley with a small river or stream running through the centre portion. There should be no green valley below. Something is definitely wrong and abnormal here. We should be over ice and snow. To the port side are great forests growing on the mountain slopes. Our navigation instruments are still spinning. I alter altitude to 1400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No, it looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible. 11.30 hours. Countryside below is more level and normal, if I may use that word. But ahead, we spot what seems to be a city. This is impossible. My God. Off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They are closing rapidly alongside. They are disc-shaped and have a radiant quality to them. They are close enough now to see the markings on them. It, it is a type of swastika. Our radio crackles and a voice comes through in English with what perhaps is a slight Nordic or Germanic accent. The message is, welcome Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax Admiral, you are in good hands. You've just heard a portion of what purports to be the secret diary of Admiral Byrd during his secret trip to the Arctic in 1947. Uh, seeming to end up with some sort of hollow earth adventure, prehistoric animals, and of course, Nazi flying saucers. Later on, the story gets even stranger. Uh, he discovers that he is indeed on, on the interior of the earth. He uh, visits this mysterious city where he meets a race of Germanic sounding people who are some kind of ancient wise master race of Nordics. We discover that the flying saucers with the swastikas on them are known as Fugelrads. And uh, our boy Admiral Bird is given a warning from the ancient wise masters about man's messing around with nuclear power and how we need to change our ways. The sort of warning which I think should be familiar to people who are students of other kinds of weird thinking, especially 1950s UFO contactee culture, among other kinds of things. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in Cork, we investigate stories of the strange, attempting to be critical but never cynical. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland, and on Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. And if you like the show, you can support us over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic. This episode is all about Admiral Byrd and the Hollow Earth. Uh, I am sitting in the cabin surrounded by books and posters of mysterious places, some of which are rumoured to be entrances to the hollow earth itself and balanced precariously on my lap as I talk is nothing more than a cup of green tea, but it's a Barry's green tea. I didn't know Barry's made green tea, but they do, and it is very enjoyable. My guest this episode is the fantastic uh, Edward Guimont. He's been on many times before, and I'm always glad to have him back. There's no better person, I think, for talking about this topic. Now, the Hollow Earth 
is a huge, huge topic and there are many different elements to it. Lots of interesting people have contributed to this very strange mythology over the years, especially the fact that this particular story with Admiral Byrd, the Hollow Earth and the Flying Saucers intersects with UFO culture, contactee lore and, and lots of other things as well. There's absolutely no way that this episode could be definitive. We have simply picked some of our favourite elements and some of our favourite characters from the history of Hollow Earth lore and uh, had a really, really great conversation talking about them. Listening back and editing, I think probably some of the most important figures that we don't mention would be Richard Sharp Shaver and Ray Palmer. But I think this story is fairly well known amongst them. Um, scholars of the strange but uh, in case anyone isn't aware it's a story from the 1940s where uh, a man by the name of shaver sharp shaver which is a pretty incredible name starts sending stories into the pulp magazine's uh, amazing stories which is edited at the time by ray palmer and he purports to be receiving messages from these giant caverns under the earth and he has this whole mythology about um, good and bad robots living there and um, it, it's considered to be an important step on the way towards or an important step along the way in in the evolution of hollow earth theory or at least underground mysterious civilization theory uh, probably most important for its crossover with ufo culture because ray palmer then of course goes on to create fate magazine which is instrumental in uh, promoting early ufo culture and kind of kind of shaping the idea of flying saucers as we know them today so important characters in the history of this stuff but there's just so much to this mythology, there's absolutely no way we could get around to everything. I think you're going to really enjoy this one, folks, so I'm not going to mess around any further. Uh, we were going to start our chat with Eddie Guimont all about the Hollow Earth. So we're recording this in uh, late August, so as officially my new job is going to start, I think, September 1st, so I got... I'll assume by this time it comes out, it'll be close enough. I can <laughs> use the new bio. But yeah, so I'm uh, Eddie Guimont. I'm an incoming uh, assistant professor of world history at Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, listeners may know of that area, not just because of Lizzie Borden, but there's the skeleton in armor. It's the southern point of the uh, Dighton Triangle, or uh, uh, was it a uh, not the Dighton Rock is nearby, but uh, the Bridgewater Triangle, that's it. And then uh, uh, there, so various spooky things around there. But uh, I'm coming out of my uh, PhD work a few years ago at the University of Connecticut uh, and interested in various things of the fringe, I guess, including cryptozoology, flat earth, UFOs, and something that combines several of these things, the hollow earth as well. <laughs> Wonderful. How's it going over at the Impossible Archive? I've, I've given a few <laughs> shout outs recently because... Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm also, uh, I think that's the first time since the Impossible Archive has started, I've been back. So those who don't know, uh, I co-host along with Bill Black, who's another uh, uh, historian who I've worked with at Contingent Magazine before. So we have a podcast, the Impossible Archive, where we look through uh, various, uh, I guess, fringe topics throughout history, how they change in history, you know, their impact. We've talked a lot about the UAP stuff recently, just because that's been in the zeitgeist. Uh, talked a bit about Lovecraft as well, just because of my work. Uh, and I'll point out 
we're recording this August 21st. Yesterday was Lovecraft's birthday. So and actually Lovecraft did very briefly write about the hollow earth as a, a teenager. So there is a tiny little connection there as well. But uh, uh, but yeah, so Impossible Archive, we have some good episodes coming up, both uh, recorded and uh, uh, planned, uh, some good interviews. I'll say the next episode that's going to come out, we've already recorded it. Maybe it, it'll already be out by the time this episode uh, goes deep into theosophy, into like 1920s, uh, like homegrown cranks in the U.S. So it's, it's I think it's going to be a good parallel uh, uh, to this. Excellent. I look forward to it. And um there is an extra reason why there's been a lot of Lovecraft on the show recently. Is that something uh, you're happy <laughs> yes, to mention? Sure, sure. I'm I'm currently co-writing a book on Lovecraft, uh, astronomy, and uh, science fiction. Essentially, you know how astronomy influenced his worldview, how uh, uh, he wrote about astronomy, but also how a lot of the science fiction of you know the late 19th century, early 20th century tied in with what. Lovecraft wrote about and how he went on to influence it, uh, mainly the interplanetary stuff as I don't think that's as well written about. So I'm kind of handling the science fiction aspect of a co-author, Horace Smith, uh, who's a professor emeritus of astronomy at Michigan State University. He's mainly handling the astronomy stuff. So together, we're kind of looking at Lovecraft uh, and the stars and ideas of voyaging to other planets and stars as well. And uh, it's a lot of fun to write. It's one of the things where I have to remind myself there's other work I could be doing, to, like preparing for classes. But yeah, it's good. So hopefully sometime next year we'll get the manuscript finished up. So yeah, hopefully before too much longer as book publishing goes, that'll be hitting the shelves. That's uh, tremendously exciting. Looking forward to that one. So hopefully before, if my, if my editing skills are up to scratch, uh, <laughs> listeners will have heard a little bit of um, a, a legendary story involving one Admiral Byrd and his supposed uh, adventures in the Hollow Earth. This is a story I came across years ago, usually in books that weren't, didn't appear to be very well researched, that would have, you know, lots of short chapters about strange stories. And it was usually, there usually wasn't any attribution as to where they came from. So it's one of those stories I knew about, but I had no idea where it came from. Um, can we talk a little bit about this guy, Admiral Byrd? What was he known for in his day? And um, why are there these kind of mysteries about him? Yeah, so he was an admiral in the U.S. Navy uh, in the 20s, 1920s, 30s, 40s. Uh, I think he was active into the, or he was he was alive into the 50s, I know at least that much. Uh, but really the, uh, the 20s, 30s, 40s are when he's really active. And he was heavily involved in Arctic exploration, or polar, I should say, both North and South Pole, and especially uh, flying over the North Pole in airplanes. Uh, uh, he was, I think, not the first one to do it, but he was an early uh, advocate of polar uh, exploration through airplanes. But more substantively is he's involved in uh, Antarctic expeditions, not only you know, airplane flights across Antarctica, but these major expeditions uh, you know, that are organized for long-term you know, kind of surveying. Uh, in particular, in the late 1920s, uh, he's in charge of a U.S. Navy expedition to uh, Antarctica, and this actually is the basis for the expedition in Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which also is somewhat funny because you have Richard Byrd getting involved in uh, this expedition, which then becomes the basis for, you know, this idea of, you know, ancient aliens in, in Antarctica. After World War II in 1947, Byrd returns to Antarctica 
as part of Operation High Jump, which was this even, you know, a much more massive, you know, kind of early Cold War show of force by the U.S. Navy in Antarctica, you know, trying to show this combination that, you know, the U.S. is now this new world power, but also, oh, it's for science, you know, we have this giant military expedition, but it's for exploration. Uh, and it's really the Operation High Jump Expedition in 1947, where uh, a lot of these conspiracy theories around Richard Byrd in the Antarctic uh, come about, where you have hollow earth, ancient aliens, Nazis, UFOs, all of these things. So it is kind of ironic that Bird in the 1920s starts off as the basis, you know, for At the Mountains of Madness, which develops this ancient alien stuff, which then kind of gets merged back into Bird's biography in 1947, especially because by that time, you've also had things like uh, John Campbell's Who Goes There, uh, maybe some lesser known work. So the idea of, you know, the Antarctic as this place where you might find aliens or other mystical stuff. You can say the seed emerges with Bird, and then he kind of helps bring it to fruition or to full flowering uh, in the late 40s. So I've read that um, some of the elements of High Jump that people, you know, tried to magnify the mysteriousness of were that, oh, you know, he lost some aircraft and then, you know, stopped the expedition, pulled the expedition out early. So people were saying, hmm, I wonder what was really going on there. <laughs> and supposedly there were news reports from South America saying that, you know, he was, he had made announcements that he, the reason they were in Antarctica was to, you know, fend off some unnamed powerful enemy. Exactly. Yeah. And you have stuff like uh, him making some, I guess it was like a poetic statement, you know, like oh, I've seen the land beyond the poles, or I'd like to explore the, you know, just a kind of a, you know, a flowery, I guess, uh, euphemism for, you know, the spirit of exploration, but it gets taken very literally. So, uh, people saying he's seen the land beyond the poles what does that mean and or, or you know looking at his you know uh like the actual you know minutes of the expedition saying like oh uh you know there's this chunk of time where nothing gets recorded obviously it's been redacted uh you know, all this kind of stuff as well and this is also the time immediately after world war ii where you start to have you know kind of like the idea of like nazi super science nazi mysticism emerging uh again Science fiction plays a major role in this. You have uh, Robert Heinlein's rocket ship Galileo, which I think is the first like Nazi spaceship. Uh, the idea is basically that the Nazis, you know, build spaceships and went to the moon. And then, you know, this like boy genius inventor goes to the moon and finds the Nazi base. And, uh, and this parts of this become uh, the 1950 movie Destination Moon, that uh, kind of like this early, like high prestige science fiction film. But also we have uh, Willie Lay, a German emigre who also had worked on uh, Fritz Lang's Woman in the Moon before World War II, becomes a science popularizer in the U.S. in the 30s and 40s. In 1947, he's also publishing this article in a science fiction magazine, I think it was astounding, called uh, Pseudoscience in Nazi Land, where he really emphasizes uh, all of these, you know, kind of like fringe scientific views of the Nazis. So it's this combination of people deliberately misreading stuff that Bird writes about, but it's also happening at the exact same time. All you know, there's the sudden uh, you know resurgence or emergence, really not even resurgence, but the origin of these you know mystical Nazi you know the stuff that'll become Indiana Jones or Iron Sky really comes about in 1947.
That's tremendous. What what a conflation of different strands of, of unusual thinking <laughs> at this time. And and I, you know, I, I grew up reading all this stuff in slightly trashy potboiler yeah. paranormal books. <laughs> and I, I guess if you'd asked me, I would have said, you know, it probably emerges in the 60s, 70s with, you know, this kind of pulp literature. But I'm astonished at how early on some of this it stuff. It is really interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, and uh, like, especially some of the stuff that, or one of the big articles that Willie Lay was drawing from uh, is actually an article that had come out the year before in 1946 uh, called, I think it was German Astronomy During the War, which is written by an astronomer named Gerard Kuiper. Uh, he was a Dutch astronomer who had emigrated to the United States before World War II. And actually in the second half of the 20th century, he becomes very involved in, I think, mainly comets. Like some of your listeners may know the name Kuiper just because of the, the Kuiper Belt region of the solar system that's named after him. So it's a very you know, legitimate major astronomer. But in 1946, he writes this article on you know, just the history of German astronomy during the war. But, you know, there's a very brief passage where he suddenly talks about, you know, like the Nazi scientists rejecting Copernicanism, endorsing the hollow earth, uh, endorsing this very crazy note called the world ice theory. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, the idea of like pendulums and, uh, you know, like magic charting of like maps and stuff. So all of this stuff like that gets popularized by Lay's article does actually emerge from this uh, you know, legitimate astronomer's uh, article, although I'm not, I'm not fully clear how he learned, because again, he was not in you know, Germany or even Europe during the war, but I imagine you know, there's even you know, during the Cold War, there's scientists on both sides that you know, keep in touch with, with each other. So I'm assuming there's some kind of just you know, underground or unofficial uh, you know, social network that was linking up these astronomers, and that's how he kind of learned of some of this stuff. Yeah, and there's some really unusual ideas there that, again, I would have read in books that were not very well um, documented as a kid. And I, I'm just surprised at how <laughs> some of the people who are who are putting forth these ideas, uh, like, um, yeah. so I, I mean, I, I'm making my way through Kurlander's book, Hitler's Monsters, mm -hmm. and it's all about right, these yes. ideas. And I'm trying to judge, like, how seriously was this stuff <laughs> taken? And to read Kuiper's article, which is, is not a popular it's not a popular science article. It's not, you know, sensational. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually a very dry document where he just monotonously lists off all yeah. the different <laughs> um, astronomers in Germany at the time and what they're doing. And then in the middle of it, he I've got the clip here. He writes, certain German naval circles believed in the whole Welt theory. They considered it helpful to locate the British fleet because the curvature of the earth would not obstruct observation. Visual rays were not suitable because of refraction, but infrared raised at less infraction. Accordingly, a party of about 10 men under the scientific leadership of Dr. Heinz Fischer, an infrared expert, was sent out from Berlin to the Isle of Rügen to photograph the British fleet with infrared equipment at an upward angle of 45 degrees. And, and then he drops it and he never mentions it again. And yeah, like you say, where is he getting this from? Yeah. <laughs> again, like it is like, you can kind of like, it has that, like, even if, this is just a rumor you can see how it would be plausible just because like like the v weapon program like that's those were weapons i mean that are based in reality but you know the germans were fine with pouring you know wasting huge amounts of money and resources on these programs so you can imagine it's not too outlandish to think that they would be like all right let's at least give it a shot and you know just head over and you know <laughs> send the fleet to this island and see if we can you know see what the british are up to yeah and it, i mean one thing i'm coming to understand is that 
whatever about Hitler himself, there were absolutely people in the Reich who were deeply invested in some of these, you know, unscientific theories. And, you know, all it took was, you know, one one well-connected guy to to set up a program and, you know, every everything Himmler was doing and, and the Anna Narbe, they they funded yeah. some, he funded some weird stuff. Can, can we talk about uh, Willie Lays? I'm, I'm coming to understand again what an important character he was in the middle of the 20th century for getting these ideas across and popularizing them. Because like you say, he's writing for astounding science fiction. He's writing for these popular magazines. And um, I'm really impressed by the, his research, you know, at a time when it was difficult to get information about this stuff, he's writing these very interesting and, and thorough articles. So you sent me on a fantastic one that he wrote in the mid fifties about the history of the hollow earth, which I really yeah, enjoyed. Uh, yeah. He's a really interesting figure. Just like, you know, it's not just science fiction. He's right. He's writing for, I think it was time magazine, life magazine. Uh, he works with, uh, uh, Walt Disney on you know Disney productions in the 50s and you know arguably uh, Lay is like one of the people most responsible for convincing Americans in the late 40s that space travel is uh, possible but also kind of a desirous thing to try and accomplish you know years before Sputnik. Uh, there's a very good uh, recent book uh, from a couple of years ago called uh, the Destined for the Stars and it kind of looks at uh, the history of like notions of space travel in the U.S. before Sputnik, kind of after, between World War II and Sputnik, and uh, Lay is a big figure in that. So he's a major figure in kind of both science popularization and science fiction, again, because he seems to know a ton of people on either side. Uh, you know, he's a cryptozoologist. He writes a lot of stuff on cryptozoology. Uh, he influences uh, Bernard Hoovelman's. Uh, it's actually a bit where Lay is, <laughs> in one of his books, he's kind of, uh, you know, slightly uh, accusing Bernard Hoovelmans of uh, uh, ripping off his own work. Uh, but, you know, he's friends with Arthur C. Clarke. He's friends with Carl Sagan, uh, with Werner von Braun, both before and after World War II. So he has this huge connection. So it is like you can chart like so much of both mainstream, you know, science popularization, but really fringe stuff that all come out of him as well. Uh, it's also interesting that uh, looking up there's stuff he was interested in that doesn't really seem like the cryptozoology stuff his legacy is still there a lot of like the science fiction and you know cosmic stuff is there he was very interested in you know kind of trying to create this synthetic uh, uh chronology between like interpreting the bible through a scientific lens stuff that you know doesn't really get it's not really as remembered so as wide ranging as his interests are remembered now, I mean, it was even more wide ranging uh, uh, at the time. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I, I want your opinion on something. So rereading the the um, Admiral Byrd Hollow Earth story recently, I noticed um, it's a little bit vague as to the the nature of the people that he meets inside the Hollow Earth. So <laughs> they're blonde, they're Germanic or Nordic. They speak some yeah. sort of Germanic language. They have flying saucers that have swastikas on them. So on, on one hand, we're dealing with the you know, Nazi flying saucer, hollow earth mythology. But a lot of this also sounds to me like it could be theosophical uh, ascended yeah. masters type <laughs> stuff. This is like pre-new age kind of, because they're not, he doesn't explicitly call them Nazis and they're not, they're not evil. They're, the they're like here to help mankind in the story. <laughs> what did you think of that? Is this a cross-pollination of? Absolutely. And I think you can see this with a lot of the contactee stuff as well. Uh, I mean, we like, you no. Know, George Adamski, you know, the description of the, the Venusians he meets are, uh, and again, I think it's significant that Adamski, you know, his aliens are from Venus, 
Venus is, you know, where, uh, and I guess not, there, Venus has an important role in Theosophy. I don't know if it's the Ascended Masters or uh, uh, it's called the Lords of Venus. So again, the ties in there well, but I mean, even just in, you know, the contactees, uh, the type of aliens they see are identified as the Nordics. Uh, so I think at the time, it's uh, uh, a lot of this, you know, it's crossing back and forth very freely. And it is interesting that the idea of the hollow earth as a key element that unites, you know, the Nazi, you know, survival stuff, the UFO stuff, the theosophy stuff that, uh, you know, even like government conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, I, I used to think, and I mean, I guess I, what one of my, my kind of like pet theories is that like the 80s, 90s, uh, you know, UFO conspiracy culture gives rise to the idea of disclosure that there's this government cover up and that, you know, somehow investigators are going to, you know, crack it open and reveal everything. And I feel like that's a key aspect of 80s UFO culture that then goes into the wider conspiracy stuff like QAnon. You can see it's very clearly the descendant of that, you know, 90s UFO disclosure stuff. But reading a lot of the Hollow Earth stuff, you know, to freshen up for this, I feel like Hollow Earth people in the 50s and 60s, they were talking about essentially disclosure as well. The idea that, you know, the U.S. Navy is hiding the truth about, you know, the Hollow Earth entrance at the poles. And so I feel like, you know, this could be something where key aspects of UFO culture come from earlier uh, Hollow Earth stuff, uh, which may then, you know, in turn come from theosophy. And it's, it is interesting how this, you know, could be kind of a, a missing link in, you know, modern conspiracy trope evolution. Uh, I also do think it's funny whenever you see, you know, illustrations of Nazi UFOs, they always look like the George Adamski UFOs yeah. with like the little like spheres on the bottom. So yeah. it is very much like they're drawn visually from the Adamski contactee stuff, uh, at least in depicting the Nazi UFOs. Which, I mean, I mean given his background, so he's the first prominent contactee I think I think his book, Flying Saucers of Landed, is that 1952? Editing key in here. I'm slightly off. It's actually 1953. I should also mention what the contactee movement was. It was a subset of UFO culture that developed in the early 50s when people started reporting that they had been in contact with the uh, inhabitants of the flying saucers. Uh, very often people told wild stories about uh, going into the saucers, being taken on trips, and learning all about the culture of the people who were flying the saucers themselves. George Adamski was one of the most important early proponents of this idea, and like many people to come after him, he developed a sort of a cult or a religion around himself, something which was to become very common in contactee culture. Finally, I'd like to say that his co-author on the book Flying Saucers of Flandered was Desmond Leslie, who was a very eccentric Irishman. So always worth mentioning when you have one of those in your story. On the one hand, he had a background of this sort of new agey cult, <laughs> which was the something Royal Order of Tibet or something. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, in, to some degree, he it was a front for him making bootleg wine or something <laughs> but on the other hand you know he knew his stuff he was he was yeah, able to talk the talk as well so he he came preloaded before flying saucers around the scene he came preloaded with this background of, <laughs> of new age kind of spiritualism but on the other hand i can't help but think that his book comes out in 1952 1951 mm. the day the earth stood still yep. which kind of it's got to be important in the contact yes. i mean you've got this a, a man comes down from the stars with a message of peace for everybody and a warning about nuclear war 
and he dies and is reborn like Jesus and his name is Mr. Carpenter. There's all this obvious yeah. biblical stuff. <laughs> and then the next year, you know, you get the the kind of the, the birth of um, you know, UFO religion effectively, what becomes yeah. UFO religion. And it certainly would not be the last time that you know, UFO or even just, you know, conspiracy people in general see something they like in movies and then decide, okay, this, yeah, let's let's make this real. <laughs> let's go back to the the beginnings of Hollow Earth. It's, it's often traced to people like Edmund Halley and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, for me, for my money, the most interesting early proponent is, uh, is John Cleve Sims. And I definitely want <laughs> to talk about him. He seems like he was an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, like you mentioned, like the idea, like serious proposals that the earth is hollow, I think really you know, it was traditionally Edmund Haley in 1692 uh, uh, to, you know, and it's an explanation for various, you know, uh, perceived, uh, you know, astronomical or geological observations at the time. Uh, I think even then it's not really taken all that seriously. I mean, there's a reason why Halley's remembered for his comet, not for his uh, like geological speculation. But yeah, it's uh, really the, mo the modern hollow earth idea really emerges in, I think it was 1818 with a man, uh, John Cleve Sims, uh, living in Ohio. Uh, so he was a veteran of uh, the U.S. Army or militia. One of those, you know, it's hard to say that, but he was fought in the uh, War of 1812. I think his uncle was a prominent veteran of the American Revolutionary War. So he has this, you know, uh, somewhat prominent background. Uh, he comes up with the idea that, uh, uh, you know, the Earth is hollow, but also it can be accessed through these holes at the poles, uh, which become known as Sims holes, which is a, a great term. So, you know, the idea essentially is that uh, uh, if you go to the North Pole, you know, he, he talks mainly about the North Pole at the time because it was the closer one. Uh, uh, I think it's even before Antarctica is even officially discovered by at least a few years. So you know, he argues when you get up towards the North Pole, you're going to start going into a, you know, a gradual depression and kind of uh, you know, loop around on the inside. And there's this whole circulating system, he says, where you know, the cold water of the North Pole uh, goes in, you know, down, it falls into the earth, you know, kind of goes around the inside, comes out the uh, uh, Antarctic hole, and it kind of circulates around as, uh, you know, a circulate uh, explains how the earth keeps everything running. Uh, I believe he's the one who comes up with the idea that, you know, because the crust of the earth is thick, that the gravity comes out of the crust. So even when you're inside the hollow earth, you know, you're, you're going to be pointing, you know, your feet will still be pointing outwards just because, you know, the center of gravity is actually in the crust, not the center of the earth itself. Uh, Sims, I, I believe he's the one, he argues that it's, you can see inside because there's like a, the light kind of gets reflected through the air and the polar holes. And later on, people say there's actually like a, a you know, a mini sun in the center of the earth, or sometimes it's like, a, you know, the heated remnants of the earth's creations, so they kind of try and, uh, uh, justify it that way actually there's people who justify this by pointing out the rings of saturn so they say you know if the rings of saturn can go around that planet then you know the hollow earth can go around the inner star and that's you know, so again you see this astronomy is used to justify these speculative theories but sims really starts he lobbies the u.s senate for this expedition to go to the north pole to, you know to chart the uh uh inside of the earth's you know this inner world. Uh, he he writes, uh, he's largely suspected of having written uh, 
novel called Simsonia under a pseudonym. I mean, I think we can gen generally uh, accept that it is a, it was written by him mainly because everyone in the novel is like, wow, the, you know, the heroic John Cleve Sims was right. This is completely accurate. Uh, uh, wow, it's amazing. And so, but it's, just, and actually it's been identified as the first utopian novel written in the United States. So again, an interesting development of, uh, you know, science fiction or speculative fiction connected with the hollow earth. But the idea of this, you know, it's linked with uh, these very, you know, unique ideas of westward expansion in the US, but also the state of the United States immediately after the War of 1812, when, uh, you know, the, the survival of the country against, you know, being reconquered by the British has been assured. But at the same time, the British, after the defeat of Napoleon, are suddenly very interested in Arctic exploration as a way of you know, kind of keeping the early military industrial complex going, but also showing their power. So you know, much like the scramble for Africa later, or the space race, the Arctic starts to become seen as the center of uh, exploration and you know, national competition. So Sims is kind of building into this idea of, uh, you know, if we explore the Arctic, we can find the hollow earth and claim it and you know, kind of expand the American uh, you know, empire as we go further west. Uh, we can also go you know, inside. Uh, so it's combining these you know, various strands of uh, uh, national you know, expansionist interest and kind of uh, uh, flexing American muscle. Uh, so he lobbies the US Senate for this. Uh, and surprising, like, uh, you know, there are multiple efforts he makes to get, you know, the idea of an Arctic exploration uh, uh, expedition, you know, ostensibly to prove that these, you know, this entryway into the hollow earth exists. Uh, he does, act, you know, at some point, there are, there are some votes eventually in the U.S. Senate for this, which obviously they don't pass. Uh, there's also, like, the Department of the Navy basically says, like, all right, you know, if you want to finance this, you know, go ahead, you can do it on your own. Uh, there's some political disputes, you know, different political parties getting elected. Uh, but ultimately, this doesn't really go anywhere. But he has a big impact on popular culture. Uh, uh, I was reading how uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau cites Sims in some of his uh, work. I guess, you know, he basically equates like, uh, you know, going through a Sims hole as, you know, like a personal journey of development. So you, oh, again, wow. you see a lot of uh, <laughs> this kind of stuff. Uh, Metaphorical Sims, Sims hole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then uh, Sims has a disciple named uh, Jeremiah Reynolds, who kind of takes up the uh, mantle later in Sims's life. And then after Sims dies, and I, th I think it's 1828, I, in the 1820s, but Reynolds then becomes this, uh, major advocate of uh, you know, uh, exploring the poles to discover the holes to the hollow earth. Uh, and it's kind of this thing where Sims was really interested in Arctic exploration because it was a way to find the truth of the hollow earth. Reynolds was kind of interested in the hollow earth because it was justification for exploring the poles. So you see these, how they have two different approaches, but also I think it shows that the idea of a hollow earth is there's at least enough cultural resonance by this point where Reynolds can kind of try to build off of this in his campaigns for Arctic exploration. Uh, and one person who is very into Reynolds' work is Edgar Allan Poe, which is why in several of Poe's works, uh, you know, there are direct references to Sims and his holes, uh, not by name explicitly, but uh, in it, was it uh, his 
the the, the voyage of Hans Fall, basically his, his moon exploration hoax yeah. story that uh, uh, Poe writes. You know, there's a part when uh, in the book when Hans Fall is flying to the moon, he flies over the North Hole with the North Pole, and he's well the North Hole because he sees the hole that goes in. He goes, "Wow, it's the entrance, you know, to the Hollow Earth inside. That's amazing." Uh, or like uh, the ending of a uh, uh, narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, that's some of the you know depictions of the Antarctic with like the warming water and the turbulence is an allusion to uh, you know the idea of the South Pole is you know kind of uh, one of the entrance ways to the Hollow Earth. Uh, and what I didn't realize is that when uh, Poe was dying in the hospital, the last words he repeated before he died was Reynolds' name. So it, I mean clearly this is a guy who the idea of the hollow earth from this proponent was big in Poe's mind. I mean, literally up until the literal end of his life, it was uh, in his head. So it's very interesting about that. Uh, that says, you know, something you don't really associate Edgar Allan Poe with. I think I, I read a book once about a fictionalized Edgar Allan Poe going on a hollow earth. Is that, yes, is, that yeah, Rooker? is that the Rudy Rooker book? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it was like a, it was a nineties, nineties uh, book. Yeah. Very, yeah, very, uh, very strange one. And um, I want to mention, uh, I think, I think Willie Lay writes that by the end of Sim's life, there was, he had, he had attracted some interest by the, the czar, the Russian czar um, <laughs> to maybe yeah, well, allow him because to go also off. It's, uh, you know, there's the idea that, you know, he could just like walk to the North pole, but also, uh, this is the era in which the U.S. is expanding west. The Russian Empire is expanding east. So again, similarly, you know, you have these two competing interests for national exploration. Uh, and again, the Russians early on are also very interested in Arctic exploration as a way of kind of shoring up their own, uh, you know, ambitions of being a new European power. Uh, something that goes into the, you know, well into the 20th century. Like in the 30s, there's a lot of Soviet expeditions to the Arctic that don't really get. Uh, reported on as much. Uh, actually, interestingly, this, like, there's a specific Soviet scientist in the 30s who's real heavily lobbying for like historical preservations of like, uh, you know, sites of like where Arctic explorers have died. So this is something that's, uh, you know, connected with, uh, it's one of those continuities of both pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary Russian society in the 19th and 20th centuries. Isn't there a museum somewhere on behalf of Sims where you can go and see the he had a globe to yeah, demonstrate uh, how his hollow or, a, or was that his son? That his, son? his son sets yes, yeah, his son named Americus uh, kind of carries up the uh, mantle. I think in the 1870 he writes a biography of his uh, uh, father. You know, which I it's not the first biography of Sims. But ironically, I think like there's a few cases where he basically plagiarizes earlier biographies. So even then, he's just but just before modern copyright law, so it doesn't really <laughs> you can't fair. blame him too much. Yeah, <laughs> I have here the text of Sims's um, circular number one, which he sent. This is what he sent to uh, everybody in the government and every university he could get in touch with. <laughs> it's it's surprisingly short and, and to the point. But he says um, it's just wonderful text. He says to all the world. I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth, and I'm ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in the undertaking. I ask 100 brave companions, well-equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea. 
I engage, we find a warm and rich land stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men. On reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring. That's good, isn't it? It's exciting. It's stirring. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, that too, it ties in with, uh, like you mentioning, you saying this to all these universities. You know, he's living in what at the time is, you know, the western frontier of the United States, although hard to think of Ohio as, you know, the frontier at this. But he's getting promoted by all these, like, western boosters, too, you know, so who think, you know, in the minds of, you know, the original former original colonies in the US, you know, there's the idea that the West is full of, you know, this, these, uh, you know, hicks and bums and stuff. Uh, but they're like, no, we have this great intellectual, you know, the Newton of the West, I think he gets called for it. Uh, and then also interesting, for a time, like for a brief period, I think he's working with James Audubon as well for like uh, cataloging. So, so like, I mean, I think that was just a, a very brief, so he has some connections with some like actual, both actual, uh, quote, intellectuals but also he's being promoted as you know a symbol that uh the american west can produce these great you know, figures uh, <laughs> as well <laughs> tremendous um I, I feel like skipping forward a little bit into the 20th century and, and following where this idea goes because i want to link us back to uh, admiral bird and the ufos so when do when do the ufos come into this and are there any particular writers um maybe more responsible for this connection than others <laughs> Yeah, so I think especially uh, it's in, I think it's originally 1960, this gets published uh, by a, uh, is it Raymond Bernard, I believe. Uh, yeah, so the title of the book here I have is uh, The Hollow Earth, The Greatest Geographical Discovery in History, made by Admiral Richard E. Byrd in the Mysterious Land Beyond the Poles, The True Origin of the Flying Saucer. So it's one of those titles that basically <laughs> lays out everything there, you know, that Bird, you know, they make uh, allusion to his comment, you know, the land beyond the poles, uh, which I think may actually have been also uh, a biography or an autobiography of Bird, I believe, as a type. But then, uh, you know, the origin of the flying saucers there. So you get all of those combinations basically, uh, you know, coming together through this guy's book, which again, I believe is 1960. Uh. Editing key in here. Eddie actually sent me a really good paper about the life and work of Raymond Bernard. Uh, it's called Raymond W. Bernard, Hollow Earth and UFOs by Holly Folk. Uh, I can't resist adding in just a few extra bits of information here, being as he was such an interesting guy. His real name was Walter Isidore Siegmeister and he was born in New York and he had a career of trying to start intentional communities, sort of planned communities, where he intended to try and breed perfect or, or, or superhumans uh, through selective breeding and vegetarianism. He was very into vegetarianism. He tried one of these communes in Florida and it failed. He tried it again in Ecuador and it failed. And it seems that prior to write, having a pseudonym, Richard Bernard, and writing Hollow Earth books, he did also correspond with none other than Richard Shaver, a man who absolutely had ideas about strange things going on beneath the surface of the earth. In 1960, I think it's also when The Morning of the Magicians gets published, yes. which again is this French book that really heavily is, it's like, if, if they're drawing on Willie Lay's article, obviously, but this is like, where a lot of the ideas of, you know, Nazi mysticism, among many other things, really comes out. And like a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of what you might call history channel fare really comes out <laughs> of the Morning of the Magicians. Uh, as again, this book that seems like it ties in pretty much every conspiracy theory or 
mystic idea. But. Do you think uh, do you think Raymond Bernard's book is like the earliest or one of the earliest um, instances of the Admiral Byrd story? Do you think that's where the you know the script of him yeah. supposedly? <laughs> you know, reading his, writing his diary as he, as he makes the exhibition. Yeah. Is that, is that traceable to this book? Probably. I, I believe so. Yeah. It's uh, so again, you see how it's hollow, you know, it, there's not really a clear distinction between like this hollow earth and Nazi UFO and this regular you it's, it really is comes about all from this uh, like mm. single source. And the interesting thing too, about Bird's diaries, I think in the late nineties, there was an actual like diary of Richard Bird that was discovered, uh, and, you know, was, uh, uh, I think, put on sale at auction. And I was reading, like, you know, like some hollow earthers are trying to, like, get access or trying to buy it or, you know, they're inquiring, like, oh, is this, like, the, the diary with the, the hollow earth stuff and, you know, the Aryans at the Earth's core? And so it's one of those things where, uh, like, I guess actually much like uh, Willie Lay, uh, you know, talks about uh, the Vril or in uh, his article and how there's, you know, this, like, it seems like a small society or whatever of people who, uh, you know, talk about, you know, this mysterious theosophical energy source at the earth's core. And he makes it clear he knows that it's, you know, all fictional. And I think they knew it too, but they're just kind of interested. Uh, but I think it's Morning of the Magicians where the idea of like the Vril society emerges. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, it's one of these things where, you know, the idea that, you know, there isn't, you know, the, the Vril of Edward Bulwer-Lytton Bulwer is real and, all this stuff uh, is being promoted by the authors of Morning of the Magicians without them knowing that, you know, there was actually, you know, if briefly and small, an actual group interested in the Vril in Germany. And so it's one of those things where, you know, someone makes up something and then there's something that's discovered that actually, you know, it's, it's kind of similar and that gets taken as proof. Uh, and then. So in the sixties, uh, you've got the fake lost Admiral Byrd diary. And then yeah. in the nineties, there's a real lost Admiral Byrd diary, yep. <laughs> and and there's all sorts of fiction about the Vril Society, who yep. I always thought weren't real. But now reading Willie Lay's article from 1947, he says yes, yeah. he, he mentions a, a truth society. He calls them, but it seems like yeah. you know they were interested in Vril, but I can't really remember what they were actually called. And his his memory seems to be a bit hazy. Yeah. He said, I got some of the you know manuscripts, but I had to leave them behind. But it seems also like they may have just been like fans of the novel or something yeah. like one of those things where and it's all mixed up with the fact that like the the fool society were real and there's lots right, known yeah. about them and also as you say bulwer lytton's ideas about vril which were written as complete fiction he never i don't think he ever intended yeah anyone yeah. to take it seriously but then theosophists and other mystical people have done all sorts of things with it ever since yep, yeah <laughs> is okay i have i have a really important question so oh. <laughs> in the in the mythical version of Admiral Byrd's flight to the Hollow Earth, it's all happening in the North Pole, and it's supposed to be 1947. In real life, he was, in 1947, he was in Operation High Jump, which was the Antarctic. Is yes, this just yeah. because Raymond Bernard just didn't hadn't noticed? Is this just a flub? <laughs> or <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, it's, it's just one of those like you can sometimes say like Arctic Antarctic discuss. Yeah, people, it's not doing well re good research actually I, I forget in the the secret diary is it is operation high jump actually even mentioned by name so not in the not, text the text yeah, i so have is from a very new age very 90s website it's the only place i was able to find it i don't have the original text as raymond bernard wrote it but oh, yeah in, in the one i read it's the north pole nobody mentions high jump and yeah, it's 1947 so. <laughs> 
he may have just it's one of those things where he may have just heard like oh bird was exploring the poles and okay yeah it's the north pole and just yeah. i talked about in the polar episode that like um there's this kind of post-colonial idea that it's it's kind of irresponsible to conflate the two because yeah. you know in terms of exploration and who was living there they're vastly different because you have millions of indigenous people yep. living in, in the North Pole at the time when the Europeans are exploring, you don't in the South Pole, and it's kind of more pure in a, in a way. Yes, yeah. And yet, in, in pop culture, people conflate the two all the time, and we treat yeah. them there's no difference. <laughs> yep. Um, well, and it, it's actually, it's even the Antarctic, the Antarctic is kind of an example of this too, where for, uh, you know, uh, for thousands of years in the West, there's this idea that they're like, all right, we know there's a North Pole, so obviously there has to be a South Pole. So you can see in maps, you know, like early world maps, you know, long before the Antarctic is actually discovered, they just put an Antarctic continent on there. It's like, all right, we assume, sure, there has to be a land mass down. So again, Antarctica itself is kind of just like this thing where, all right, we're just going to assume there's a southern land mass and they actually discover it. And then later on, you get, you know, conspiracy people saying, like, how did they know there was a South Pole? You know, why did they, you know, assume that? And just, but it's just, you know, from this assumption of the world there, okay, the world has to be balanced out. So we're just going to put a land mass down there. So uh, talking about, so in, in Raymond Bernard's book, he's assuming that. Um, you know, Admiral Byrd meets these blonde Nordic sounding people and they have they use the swastika symbol. And uh, to me, I, I think this is sort of early new age kind of theosophical ideas because yeah. all that is mixed up with, you know, German ideas from the turn of the century about their supposed origin, mystical origins on the Indian <laughs> subcontinent and the theosophical ideas about ascended masters and Himalayas and all that. And that's where they got the swastika from originally. But it could also be interpreted as Nazis <laughs> having a secret base in Antarctica or yeah. in the Hollow Earth, and that is a separate idea which has uh, its own weird history. Yeah, it's, you get stuff like uh, uh, is a, the the Kecksburg, uh UFO yeah. crash, which obviously yeah. was like uh, a Nazi weapon or Nazi weapon. I don't. I'm never quite clear on what that thing. It was like supposed to be like a flying bell shaped something that. And I don't know why it's one of those things where I don't really understand why people would assume it's crashing in like 1960s Pennsylvania or just, uh, but yeah, so it's, you have all these like weird things getting, you know, mixed in of, uh, you know, are, are these flying saucers actually from the Nazis or are they from, uh, uh, you know, like ancient Tibetans who went to Antarctica and they're the origin of the Aryans. Uh, and it's, in, and you know, like at the very beginning of, uh, the flying saucer craze too you had the idea that you know maybe the flying saucers are these leftover german secret weapons from world war ii so right from the start too you do get kind of seeds of uh you know nazis being involved with flying saucers i think that pretty clearly peters out but yeah there's a lot of stories and so i, I was reading black sun by nicholas goderick clark and he talks about a lot of um ex-Nazi scientists who popped up in the 50s with stories saying, oh, I was on a secret program that built saucers. And, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was linked to, you know, the Pinamund, um, yeah. you know, the places where they built the V2s and then they moved yep. to these like real life horrific slave labor built underground um, bases, mm -hmm. which again feeds into, yep. you know, 1990s <laughs> UFO culture with, with secret underground alien bases and yeah. slave labor and all that stuff. And and all, all, all the stuff with the, the, the Wunderwaffen, the the, yep. the wonder weapons and this idea that oh the Nazis were so technologically advanced that they couldn't possibly have lost they must have taken all their you know high tech stuff and hidden it somewhere underground or in the Antarctic <laughs> and it's just funny how like 
ever since, you know, for hundreds of years, we have placed our mysteries in the places we can't get to. So the Antarctic yeah. <laughs> specifically and, and the Arctic are continually places of mystery because they're hard to get to. But then as the 20th century goes on and we have more information about those places, suddenly the hollow earth isn't necessarily accessed via the poles, it's accessed via these other mystical places. So it's the Himalayas yeah. or it's uh, Mount Shasta in California. Oh, yeah, or Mount it's... Shasta. Oh my God. <laughs> that's like, it is strange. Like just like, that's like such a key, like unifying thing also to say this mountain in California is all of a sudden, you know, it's everyone, it's every strange idea somehow has to tie into that. But whoever did like PR and like the Mount Shasta and a park service or whatever, like they must've done a real good job promoting that. <laughs> it's, it's on my, it's my list of places to go. I, I understand there's a town there, which is all hippies and new agers and um i'm sure yes yeah. <laughs> i'd enjoy it maybe ironically, like, but <laughs> i'd enjoy you it have to wonder like in that town like you know like the town council elections if you know instead of democrats and republicans it's like theosophists versus the bigfoot supporter like yeah <laughs> i'd be hard pushed to, to choose between those yeah and <laughs> uh, worth mentioning that um you know a lot of people bring up in these stories of, of you know secret antarctic bases and stuff of course, the, the Nazis did make at least one expedition to Antarctica during the, I think the late 30s. It was to... 1938, I think. Uh, yeah, it was right before. Uh, the same time, they're also having their Himalayan expeditions, too. And yeah, it's, it's again, it's part of, you know, trying to prove that, you know, Germany is a, you know, a major military power, but also a scientific power. And they're going to be exploring Antarctica. And uh, I think they were planning a second expedition to uh Antarctica as well, but then the war broke out. Uh, but yeah, you know, the new Schwabia, as it was uh, called, the, the the territory the Germans claimed in Antarctica, and, you know, that gets tied into uh, you know, like the fall of uh, uh, like you get you get these people who don't quite understand like international law, so they'll say like, all right, the Germans claim New Schwabia, but that wasn't actually part of you know like the surrender at the end of World War II, so technically it's still you know a sovereign you know branch of the Third Reich, and that's why that, you know, the Nazis moved all there, like, you know, an Operation High Jump is actually, like, the secret war to finish World War II by defeating, uh, you know, this part of the Nazi empire that wasn't included in the surrender, and it's, uh, it's, these people, you get to see a lot of, like, how ideas come from faulty understanding of how laws work. Uh, oh, and I like, again, like there are stories on, yeah. about how High Jump got cancelled because, Bird, he didn't lose his four aircraft because of bad weather. He lost them because he was in a firefight with Nazi flying saucers from the secret yeah. base. And, <laughs> oh, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and I love how in, in the real German expedition um, to Neutrabia, they they noted that there were mountain ranges that they had discovered, which shades of Lovecraft, you know. Yep, yeah. <laughs> uh, but also they found some lakes that were, you know, unfrozen for most of the year, mm. which is unusual. This got translated in the, in, the, in the myth into like, oh, they found, you know, uh, you know, an oasis of, of warm, uh, yep, a secret yeah. warm area, which ties into like old ideas about all oh, the poles. If you keep going through the poles, you'll finally get to an open polar sea, which is warm and you'll find the land, yep, which is yeah. green and lovely. And, you know, all, all of the old British 19th century expeditions, like John Barrow, exactly. he, I think he believed that there was an open mm -hmm. polar sea and that this, yeah. so that goes right back to the Northwest Passage stuff. And exactly. Yeah. As well as the Hollow Earth stuff, if you want to take it yeah, that way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, then, you know, there's also stuff like, uh, uh, again, to show the influence of uh, uh, science fiction, you have Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth and you know, the inner 
uh, core there, but where inside the earth is all these prehistoric animals that are still alive uh, and giant humanoids too. So again, you get kind of that, uh, that's only very briefly seen, but then in the Admiral Byrd's story, you have, he, he cites the mastodon or the mammoth walking around and that's right in uh, Jules Verne's Hollow Earth too, uh, that there's you no know, mammoths with you know, giant like Nephilim shepherds tending. Yeah, I love in the bird thing where he's like, oh my God, it's, a, it's an elephant. No, wait. A mammoth. And <laughs> it's so badly if, written. It's <laughs> yeah, as if you, know, you would see a giant hairy elephant and just be like, wow, a hairy elephant. No, wait, a mammoth. Like, <laughs> yeah, but the notion that if you if you you're on the American continent and you just keep going north, you will eventually yeah. find mammoths. That, there's its own strain of, as we've talked about before, you know, that's its own strain of mythology, which like a lot of this stuff we're discussing i think has colonial uh, like yes, expansionist yeah. undertones as exactly and there's especially in simsonia there's like yeah. the manifest <laughs> destiny stuff is really blatant in that one i, I think um, in simsonia like the ending is just like we're gonna like conquer these natives and introduce them to factory labor and we're gonna bring civilization like utopia is defined as like all right, now it's time to get a nine to five job and yeah, know the, yeah. the iron factory. The exact same language is used in Edgar Rice Burroughs and his Hollow yeah, Earth books, yeah. where oh, the, which are very badly written, oh, even by so... Burroughs. It's just like, but I guess, I guess he wrote those before, uh, or no, I think he wrote those after, uh, uh, the first John Carter book. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's they're later, it's <laughs> the two, like the dial, just like, or is it? It's David Inns, David Inns, and Oh goodness! But they they basically say, they find this unspoiled Eden, and then they all just tell, they they can't wait to industrialize everything <laughs> and teach the 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 people how to use how to make weapons and you know it's <laughs> and, and they're really blunt about it. <laughs> it's, it's David, funny. I'll bring some gunpowder down. Yes, you must go to the surface and get the weapons, and we will like conquer them. And <laughs> oh, and he literally says we live like kings or something like yeah. that. But they end by being like. We decided like the best form of government would be an empire yes. and they decided I should be the emperor and just like... yeah. incredibly blunt. I really wish I'd discovered Edgar Rice Burroughs when I, when I was younger. I think I would have enjoyed it very much <laughs> as a kid, but I'd, I I'd always read about, I'd read obviously Cosmos and Carl, Carl Sagan talks about yeah, how much he yeah. loved Burroughs growing up. So I always wanted to read them and I, I found them <laughs> quite late in life and I found them quite clunky. Yeah. And <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a, the, his Hollow Earths, it's called uh, the Pelucidar series, but yeah, it's, I think those are definitely uh, some of the, the lower tier Burroughs writing. I hear my copy of Land the Time Forgot, <laughs> oh, trying, to, there you go. <laughs> trying to make my way through, and it's it's clunky and has yeah. loads of like pseudo-Darwinist stuff in it, which is just yeah. <laughs> very of its time. Yes. <laughs> Have we skipped anybody interesting in the history of Hollow Earth? I know you wanted to talk about um, oh, a, Flo a, a Florida Cyrus cult. Uh, yeah, it's a, so he was a guy who very clearly is uh, late 1800s, I believe, or maybe early 19, but I, th I think it was late 1800s, but you know, essentially a, uh, I guess, I guess we call him new religious movement leader. Uh, uh, he, he developed a religion because he referred to himself as uh, Cyrus because he thought it was like the resurrection of Cyrus, uh, the ancient Persian emperor. So, uh, you know, in, I guess, I don't know if it's Persian or Hebrew, Cyrus is Koresh. So he develops a new religion called Koreshanity, uh, named after himself, of course. But, uh, but part of it is he's very influenced by Sims. He has this idea of, uh, you know, he endorses the hollow earth, uh, but he has the idea that we're actually living inside the hollow earth and that 
know, when we look up into the sky, we're actually looking towards the center of the hollow earth and the earth is actually concave around us. And it's just, you know, an optical illusion that it seems like we're on the outside of a sphere. Uh, and so he develops this uh, a device called, I think it was called the the rectilineator, whereas essentially, you know, it's it's very similar to the Bedford level experiment that the uh, mm. flat earther, I mean, if you read about the description, it's it's fairly, it's essentially the same thing where it's a you know, along this, uh, you know, stretch of beach and his uh, Florida commune, which he also got by basically scamming this uh, old German immigrant out of his land, which uh, uh, some issues, he gets involved also basically trying to, trying to like take over the local town council. And uh, actually it's interesting how he gets involved with like opposing like Jim Crow, like reconstruct or post reconstruction politics, mainly because they won't let him like preach about the hollow earth anymore. So a lot of interesting stuff there, but essentially on this long line of in this like Florida beach, he sets up these, uh, you know, basically poles and you're supposed to look through them and it's going to prove that the, uh, you know, the light is refracting around instead of, you know, going straight. And it's apparently, I guess he says he, it worked for him. So, uh, you know, unsurprisingly there, but yeah, I mean, this is an early effort to, you know, test uh, that the earth is actually concave and, you know, it's sh very much shades of the uh, uh, German claims from World War II. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. So you can see how this is kind of an innovation, not only in uh, the, the literal worldview of the hollow earth, but also kind of uh, uh, the attempts to measure and, you know, prove the hollow earth uh, later in the 20th century that really come out of uh, uh, Koresh and his Koreshanity. Uh, I think he eventually got beat to death by a mob in Florida. Or he, he got beaten up, and I think he later died of injuries from that. So uh, uh, a cautionary tale, I guess, uh, whether about <laughs> believing the hollow earth or living in Florida, uh, take your pick. But. <laughs> I think there's a museum there now for or a park or something where the commune Oh, Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, there's a, I guess he like made his, his compound, like, Part of his PR was like he's going to make like a real nice, like beautiful compound that the public were invited into. Uh, kind of reminded me of like Xanadu from, uh, mm. uh, or what, what's that? Uh, it's a, the, the con. There's like some like the concrete uh, place in Florida that's supposed to be a concrete castle, know, but some strange like conspiracy related place in Florida. I think for, uh, for many years before it was easy to get stuff online. And my best source of information about Hollow Earth in general was a book by David Standish, just called Hollow Earth. And yes, he, has a whole, yeah. he has a whole chapter on Koreshanity. That's a good book, yeah. He a, spends most yeah. of the time talking about how nice the commune life seems to be. And yes. how, <laughs> you know, they had these, they had a bandstand and in the evenings <laughs> they would have concerts. And because it was Florida, the weather was always good. And, yeah. you know, he said, look, it was weird. And he was trying yeah. to take over the town by some sh shady political shenanigans. But, yeah. you know, it sounded like a nice place to live. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and a, a big part of Koreshanity was living in, uh, uh, you know, taking like a vow of chastity. But of course, you know, he's living with like his, uh, like two married women uh, who lived with him in their house. So obviously it's not a whole lot. Uh, I think like... Uh, he uh, standish i think he talked about how like the german guy like basically got swayed by like they're having a bunch of their uh you know like nubile young you know hollow earth uh maidens you know living with him so it's <laughs> some things uh don't some some similarities with a later koresh maybe but uh, oh yeah good yeah good shout <laughs> uh, so wrapping up or at least approaching an end um 
I, this doesn't feel to me like a movement which has had its comeback yet. Like, you know, Flat Earth came back against all expectations. Yeah. <laughs> our, our current conspiracy culture, in our current conspiracy culture, nothing nothing seems off the table. I wouldn't be surprised if this yeah. came back in some way, even in a semi-ironic fashion. But to you, what is the what are the longest lasting effects of this idea? I mean, I think like... Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah so it, it's maybe it's starting to make a comeback with that but uh but i would say like i think on the one hand there's the idea of like so much of the ufo stuff really gets tied in with you know maybe it's like the last gasp of hollow earth stuff in the middle of the 20th century and i feel like that's a big influence even if it's maybe not the earth being hollow itself but a lot of the the stuff that ufo culture picks up on kind of comes out of stuff that hollow earth proponents are already are also making so it's, it's maybe not the core concept literally but stuff that was associated with that and I, like you alluded to also uh, the idea of the dumbs the deep underground military bases uh and just like the underground is an area where there, there's stuff beneath us we don't know and you know whether it's aliens or ancient civilizations or government conspiracies uh, somehow it's all tied in uh to stuff that's happening below us. And I don't know if that's specifically hollow earth as much as, you know, just, you know, you can go back to like, you know, Hades or you know, the, the more traditional underworld type stuff, but that also might be a, uh, a tie in. I mean, I know there's stuff also like people trying to argue that uh, like the moon is hollow and uh, you see, you see a bit of that. At least maybe that was maybe a blip, you know, a few years ago, I think. Uh, again, some of the flat earthers, I think, were, you know, trying to argue that the moon was a hologram and stuff. like. Actually, David Icke, I think, got involved with that, too. That was one of his uh, lesser known things. So, yeah, it's, uh, there are elements of it that kind of bubble up every now and then. But yeah, it, it is kind of sad we don't get more of the hollow earth stuff uh that could be fun i think <laughs> yeah i'm fond of it and i guess it kind of came about as as an extension of the colonialist mentality the desire yes, for there yeah. to be places to go and have adventures and it fits in with all of the sort of uh, victorian adventure fiction that i'm really interested in and you know as we got to know more of the world it was no longer mm -hmm. believable for you to set your adventure story, your lost world story in South America or the Amazon or whatever, you had to set it somewhere incredible. And then after we discovered the poles, you know, that's when space, you know, space exactly, fiction, and yeah. that becomes a new place where you set your adventure. But the hollow earth is almost like a, it's almost like a deliberate reversion to type where, yeah. no, I will have my, my lost world adventure and I will set it somewhere, not on the earth, but in the earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why, you know, maybe the next, uh, the the upcoming Indiana Jones movie maybe he'll go to the find out the, mm. I think that's set in the 60s so yeah maybe he's gonna follow the trail of Admiral Byrd and uh, I'm almost certain it. there's a novel there's like from the 80s or 90s there's a Indiana Jones novel <laughs> where that happens oh boy <laughs> there's there's a Indiana Jones uh, novel where he meets Percy Fawcett so that's uh yeah it's <laughs> he's he's on my on my to do list for sure I might oh have yeah there's there's a naval base or there's an old military base near here on an island where he served in about 1903. So <laughs> oh, I, I'm trying to arrange a trip where I can go and talk to somebody. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Um, Eddie, where can people find your work online or what are you up to these days and that you'd like people to know about? Well, yeah, my Twitter accounts uh, at Edward underscore Guimont. Still slowly trying to work on my website. I actually, I just renewed the the payment for the website. So I still have not actually done significant work on it, but hopefully this is going to convince me to 
one of these days get around to it. But yeah, any anything interesting I'm doing will be there. Uh, check out the Impossible Archive, uh, my podcast, also available on Twitter at arc underscore arc underscore impossible. Uh, I think we have maybe seven or eight episodes out as of now. I think, but uh, uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, I mean that's that's about where you'll find me. Again, I'm working on the Lovecraft book as always very slowly working on my flat earth research, which will someday become a book. Uh, but other than that, uh, uh, yeah, those are the big things I'm working on now. Tremendous. Uh, look forward to the books. Uh, I recommend the Impossible Archive, as I always do. And um, looking forward to some theosophy on that as well in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> so thanks a million for talking. Absolutely. It was great fun. And that is it for this episode, folks. Once again, huge, huge thanks to Eddie for coming on. Uh, once again, always great fun, always tremendously knowledgeable. Such a depth of knowledge on this subject in particular. And special thanks to him for sending on to me lots of really great articles about this subject, helping me to sound like maybe I know a little bit about it as well. Uh, as always, folks, if you were a fan of the show, you can help out over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Uh, I'll give you a shout out if you do and uh, say something interesting or let us know where you're listening from. I always enjoy that as well. If you want to share this episode or other episodes uh, on your socials that's really really helpful as well that's probably one of the most helpful things you can do over on twitter we are of course at strange ireland that is usually where i kind of share stuff that i'm working on and i try and share the work of friends of the show as well we have i know we have a tremendous amount of uh, creative or academic or people with cool jobs or who have a great interest in the subject so i try and share stuff that they're all doing uh, or over on instagram if you prefer we are wide atlantic weird podcast and that's kind of a lot more which books i'm reading for research or pictures of my outdoor adventures mountain climbing and hill walking and that sort of thing so uh, whichever way you'd like to get in touch is amazing let us know what you think and until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.